So, um, morning, folks. Um, this morning's reading is Exodus chapter 4. Um, as you're looking that up, to save you the hassle, the band have solved the issue of who stole the communion wafers. It was Fluffy the cat, and that's why she's unwell. So, Sister Mary just needs to have better cat control. Um, okay, so Exodus chapter 4. It's called Moses Given Powerful Signs. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it in the ground. So he threw it in the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back in your cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seen, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, which you shall do the signs. Amen. Sometimes the characters in the Bible sort of seem so heroic, don't they? It's, it, it's hard to relate to them. It's hard to really sort of connect the things that they do with our everyday life, which feels kind of mundane by comparison, doesn't it? But Moses here is a very different man, aged 80, as he is here, than when he was aged 40, when he'd first left Pharaoh's court. He's not as rash and angry, but he also seems completely empty of any sense of self-confidence. And I wonder, therefore, whether we might begin to identify with Moses, because I wonder whether you might have known something of that feeling at a point in life. Three times here, Moses will try to escape the task of leading God's people into freedom. But this is the moment, and this 
is the man that God has called because God powers the powerless. And so I want to show you just three things in this uh, section of the story this morning. The signs, the speech, and the mouthpiece that God gives. If you look to those first nine verses there, it focuses on three signs that God gives Moses. Uh, occasionally in life we look for a physical visible sort of sign to validate somebody's credibility and and capability Um, when a new footballer is bought for around sort of 100 million pounds the sort of critical sort of eye test is can they do some keepy uppies in front of the camera and so you have this slight sort of fake stage thing where you have to do that and you know when you see the player sort of rolling it off the head down the shoulders onto the back and everything I think he's all right he's all right he is Uh, If it goes badly, you're starting to think, can it really get any better from here? The odd thing is that we don't really do this with other jobs, but I think maybe we should. You know, when you're sort of appointing a new accountant, you should be able to do some sort of quick mental arithmetic just sort of in front of you. Or an IT technician just handed a dying laptop and, you know, turn it off and on for us so we can can tell. Or a bank clerk, you know, how quickly can you count? So 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, oh yeah, they're they're the real deal. Or a labourer, you know, how many stacks of sand can you get on your shoulder at once? God gives these signs to Moses as a physical, a visible validation that Moses was his man. But Moses' first objection here is to do with his past, isn't it, if you look there? It's to do with his past. He doesn't think the people will accept him as their leader. Look at verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. He had had all this great promise of all that God would do, but he still can't get past his felt inabilities. He's doubting himself, isn't he? Not so much God. But when God's appointed you and called you, to doubt yourself is to doubt God's ability to work in your inability. He says, they won't believe me or listen to my voice. They will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the root of this insecurity is about his identity, isn't it? And I wonder whether you and I actually maybe know a little bit what that feels like. What it feels like to maybe have a bit of an inferiority complex. They won't believe God's appeared to me. And Moses has spent 99% of his life not living with the people of Israel and therefore not knowing God and following him. He's, he's been brought up in the way and the wisdom of the Egyptians in Pharaoh's court. They're not going to believe me that now I'm the one who's coming and telling you about your God. But notice here, God doesn't actually resolve or even answer Moses' insecurities. Instead, he offers him three signs to validate him. The staff, the hand, and the water. Verse 2 to 5 here, he offers him the sign of the staff. He says, what's that in your hand? A staff. This is a gentle sort of parent encouraging a child, isn't it? What's that you've got in your hand there? Throw it on the ground. And it becomes a serpent. And Moses ran. And it's an almost comical reaction for a hero, isn't it? And you think that Moses, man who has shepherded sheep through the wilderness, would be used to snakes. But I guess it's probably more just the surprise (laughs) that he wasn't expecting it to come from the staff. Put out your hand 
and catch it by the tail, God says. And so rather than answer Moses' doubt, this is now a trust exercise, isn't it? Put out your hand and pick it up. Trust me that it's not going to go badly for you here. Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so God tells him, look, I've given you this, that they may believe that the God of their fathers has appeared to you. And the point of the sign is purely to make sure that the people of Israel do believe, even if they're tempted not to, even if Moses is worried that they won't. He gives him the staff, but secondly, he gives him the hand, doesn't he? Verse 6, put your hand inside your cloak. Puts it inside and he took it out and his hand comes out and it's leprous, it tells us, like snow. And he says to him, put your hand back inside your cloak. And when he takes it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And this requires quite a lot of trust to do, doesn't it? To believe that actually when he puts the hand back in, it's going to be restored again. That it's not just going to be stuck like this now. This sign would be fine if it's somebody else's hand. You know, that's okay. You can have all the trust in the world because it's not you with a leprous hand at the end of it, but it's his hand. It tells us that it's leprosy, but actually it's difficult to know exactly what that sort of meant because this could have meant a variety of different sort of skin conditions at the time. If it is leprosy as we sort of know it, sort of skin disease that literally sort of wastes away the sort of uh, flesh and muscles, that, that was then considered incurable. So that would be quite a sign. But the way it's described, it seems to be more like a sort of form of eczema or, or psoriasis that is still very, very uncomfortable and unpleasant for him. He says, if they'll not believe you or listen to that first sign of the snake, they may believe this latter sign. He gives the staff and the hand, but lastly, he gives the third sign, the water. Look at verse 9. If they'll not believe these two signs or listen to your voice, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water will become blood on the dry ground. The Nile here was considered sacred, holy, to have sort of healing powers, much like the, the Ganges does in, in some people's uh, culture today. And so this sign shows God's power over and above the powers of Egypt. The signs all together show that God has power over creatures, the snake, over humans, the hand, and over creation itself, the water. And we know actually, spoiler alert, from just a few verses on, that the people do believe these signs when Moses presents them. We see that in verse 31. And they do believe the words, just as God had promised back in chapter 3, that they would listen to Moses' voice. In doubting his ability, Moses was limiting God's capability. Because was God not able to overcome any inability on Moses' part? Yes. And Moses' insecurities were not only limiting God's ability but they were also underestimating the faith of Israel. God answers Moses' doubts, giving him these three physical, visible signs that validate that he is God's leader. There's the signs. But then secondly, verse 10 to 12, we see the speech. There's a great story of the footballer Stuart Pearce and his manager, Brian Clough. You don't need to know them. You don't need to care about football. It's not really a story about football. It's a story about sort of human interactions. Stuart Pearce got selected for the England team, and he talks about some of his doubts in the sort of build-up to that. 
He says, I was full of nerves about stepping into the England setup, just like I was when I turned pro. He says, I felt, am I good enough? He says, you have doubts in your mind. And so he recalls the way that his club manager, Brian Clufford, reacted to this news. He says, he called me into his office, sat me down, and word for word said, see, you're in the England squad. He says, yes, boss. Do you think you're good enough? So he's quite honest. He says, well, I'm not sure. And so Brian Clough responded, I don't. Now get out. Moses' second objection is he doesn't think that he's good enough. He doesn't think he has what it takes to do the job that God has asked. But God's approach is far more gracious than that manager. Moses' second objection is to do with his skill. He doesn't think he has the skill to lead the people out. Firstly, it was, it was about his past that he didn't think they would really believe him because of where he'd been. But secondly, it's about that skill. He says, excuse me, verse 10, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken, which wasn't very long ago. Moses hasn't given it very long to test that out. But Moses seems aware that he might now be testing God's patience. And so you notice the politeness. like, excuse me, bear with me. But I'm not eloquent. He just doesn't believe he's capable of God's task. He says, I'm slow of speech. The word there actually is literally heavy of mouth and of tongue, heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. One commentator reflects on this and notes that this isn't a physical problem that Moses has. He says, eloquent and slower speech and tongue do not point to a physical speech impediment, but to someone to whom words did not come easily. It would seem Moses did not think of himself sufficiently quick in thinking up counter-arguments to deal with objections as they arose. Moses was afraid that in the intense negotiations that would undoubtedly take place with Pharaoh, he would not be quick or persuasive enough to present the case adequately before Pharaoh. And so look at God's response here, verse 11. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Leaves us with a few questions, doesn't it? Are physical adversities outside of God's plan? And it answers that for us. No. No, they're not. And actually, no they're no limitation on fulfilling God's plans for your life. But it leaves us with a question of why can't God reverse it? God made us. There's no reason that he can't reverse these things too. There's no reason to lose all hope that he can't respond to that but listen to what he really says to Moses here because he's not saying to Moses who says look I can't speak I'm just not very good at that he doesn't say oh yes you can Moses he doesn't he says trust me that I can make you speak and God is gracious to do this for us Moses is wrong here but I feel for him he's wrong but I sort of get it I can think back, and I never wanted to be a pastor. My dad was one, and that was enough to put me off, right? I had no interest or desire. I didn't romanticize it. It was the one job, in fact, I knew I didn't want to do. But I got dragged to a youth camp that I didn't want to go to. I pretended to sleep on the bus on the way up so I didn't have to talk to anyone because, you know, 
He's stuck for multiple hours at a time with sort of other Christians. <laughs> Unbearable. <laughs> so what, what else do you do? I've suddenly found, actually, I'm a lot better at acting than I thought. Uh, there you go. Uh, and in fact, actually, you know, there was something of a blind panic that I sort of experienced of worrying, you know, there, there is the chance that maybe, just maybe, I might wind up becoming a Christian here. And, you know, I don't need that. So I sort of hedged my bets. And, well, pray that I don't, <laughs> which doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't. But there you go. That was something of the blind panic that I was in because Christianity seemed to be intellectual suicide, moral hypocrisy, and you know, just the end of any sort of uh, social acceptance. Guess what happened when I became a Christian, though? First night. <laughs> God called me to ministry. And that wasn't something that pleased me. That, that I still didn't want to. And one of the big things about that was I could, felt I couldn't talk in front of anyone. I couldn't even give you an answer in class, let alone give any sort of a speech. And so I protested to God, well, you know, if you really want this to happen, you're really going to have to do something about that, aren't you? Because, you know, at some point, that's going to be a fairly significant part of it, isn't it? So Moses is wrong, but I get it. Because I was wrong. And I had to get over that too. And you know, the reality is, there's an abundance in life of talented people. But God had only called Moses. And what you may lack in talent for what God has called you to, that you might not want to do either, actually God more than makes up for an anointing. Talent is overrated. And Moses just can't see how much God could do for him. And yet, there's a bit of an sort of disconnection between the way Moses sees himself and the reality because I remind you of Stephen's speech in Acts 7 Acts 7 verse 22 that Moses was mighty in his words and his deeds Moses through God actually had all the skills he needed for this task and so God says now therefore go there's no easy way out for Moses he has to go as he's been told by God and so this rubs up against, perhaps you, you'll have seen this in different places, there's this sort of little meme that goes around sometimes, isn't it, that God won't give you more than you can handle. But not only does God not operate this way, he does give you more than you can handle. He doesn't promise to operate in a way that doesn't give you more than you can handle. God regularly pushes you way out beyond your sort of the limits of your comfort. And that's the point at which we actually have to exercise our faith in him. And that's why. God is a good father here, and so he pushes Moses and he pushes us beyond our comfort. And I wonder where maybe you and I need to hear that this morning. And he says, and here's the encouragement to him, I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And the way that Moses uh, and God, this interaction is sort of handled by God here, it, it reminds me of what it was like to sort of learn to swim in, in the 90s. You know, if, if you didn't learn to sort of swim with your parents or whatever, then what would happen is you'd all go off with the school at a certain point, and they used to sort of celebrate that, you know, everybody comes back from these couple of weeks knowing how to swim. Um, 
And basically, that's because at a certain point, you'd be chucked in the pool and just have a stick put in front of you. And it's, you know, if you really get into trouble, just grab hold of the stick. <laughs> and uh, I'll be there in front of you. And they'll hold it just a little bit further in front of you, you know, to really get you sort of out there beyond your limits. Um, actually, I was quite disappointed because I, I searched all over the internet to try and find a picture of someone doing that. And I guess just probably at a certain point, maybe people realized... Uh, maybe that's not a great way to sort of deal with kids. So, you know, I was on WikiHow and there's like, you know, 32 different slides of how to teach your kids how to swim at different age brackets. I'm just thinking, man, in the 90s it was two. It was, you know, you get in your gear, you're in the pool, there's the stick if you need it. Go. But this is what God is like with Moses. You know, uh, you will be going. You know, I'll be there with you. But you will be going. You will be speaking. There's no easy way out of this. And God is able to work here in spite of our inability. And even our powerlessness doesn't limit God's power. This is where actually our insecurities about ourselves can start to drift to become a problem. And to become a problem of not having faith in God. Because are you really wanting to say that your lack of ability is so big, so great, it's greater than God's ability to overcome it? Many of us have this same fear as Moses, don't we? This lack of a quick, clear, clever, effective, convincing words in sharing our faith. Worry that we're just going to sort of botch it, trip over ourselves. But is it really about you and me and the impressiveness of our words? Or is it about the God who is behind those words? And so, in a way, a certain amount of uncertainty is probably quite good, actually, isn't it? To actually be aware that you know, I don't have all the abilities that I'll always need. That's good. But hopefully it should lead you to a place of dependence in prayer, not a sort of paralysis in fear. And why does God do it this way? We hear elsewhere that God loves to use the weak things of the world. It shows his overwhelming power that he uses those who are not the most capable, not the most talented, not the most gifted, I love the interaction in the New Testament where some of the apostles are arrested and the, the judges are trying to think through what's happened. They think all the amazing things that's happened, the amazing braveness and courageousness of keeping on preaching a message they've been told not to and they keep getting beaten and imprisoned for it. Why is this happening? And they make the connection. They must have seen Jesus because um, these are not educated men. <laughs> these are not talented or skilled men. The only explanation is they've encountered the living God. Moses believes his lack of skill, or felt lack of skill at least, disqualified him from God's task. But God said he would give the ability he didn't feel he had. There's the signs, there's that speech, and then lastly here, there's the gift of a mouthpiece. And the reality we face here is that Moses just didn't want to do it. Uh, If you have kids or you have responsibility for kids, um, I I think you'll know something of this feeling, I think, of encountering this through children. And isn't one of the worst things about that that you find yourself turning into your parents? You know, you hear yourself for a moment and you know that you're sounding exactly like your parents before you. I have a saying that frequently comes out to my kids and this passage makes me think of it you know we tell them they need to do something nothing happens we tell them again nothing happens they come back and they say well I don't want to do that and so I say I didn't ask whether you wanted to do it 
I told you to do it, so do it. And then I realise I'm exactly like my father before me. (laughs) And I'm currently sort of trying to see actually if I can get a sponsorship from Nike to sort of reuse their branding slogan because I I think it will uh, uh, fit nicely. Just do it. And you know, God is patient. But Moses has now pushed his luck. And now we get to the real heart of it because Moses just didn't want to do it. And God never asked if he wanted to do it. He told him he was going to do it. His first objection was about his past. He didn't think they believed that God had appeared to him. Secondly, it was about skill. He didn't think he had the abilities he needed. But thirdly, it's about desire. Moses just doesn't want to be the one to lead the people. He says, verse 13, excuse me, Lord, please send someone else. And now Moses is testing God. And the problem shifts from lacking confidence to just being disobedient. The other insecurities were just a more acceptable face, uh, a little veneer covering over the disobedience that underlined them. And I think maybe we sometimes do that, don't we? As I reflect on my unwillingness at first to want to follow a call to ministry, that was just, I just didn't want to. (laughs) Because I didn't want to. Sometimes God's asked us to do something and we find excuses because we just don't want to do it. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He's been patient, but that's starting to run out. And let's just pause a second and, and ask maybe how do we understand that idea that God here would be angry with a servant? And maybe the easiest, perhaps, day to day relationship to try to put this in some sort of context of how can you be angry with someone that you sort of love is marriage, isn't it? A healthy marriage has conflict. It has emotions, uh, sometimes strong emotions. And when things are working well and we're in sync, that's brilliant. When we're at odds, that's, that's a little harder and, and then that's the sort of trying to manage that and resolve that. And actually, sometimes anger is actually quite a good thing to have in a relationship. It just needs resolving well, okay? Because, you know, when you're angry because you wanted the best from the other person because you love them, that's actually a good thing in a way. Because you don't want to settle for someone you care about so much, you know, seemingly not caring about you. When there's never any anger, that might be because there's actually a bit of a lack of love too, that almost there's a stopping caring. I'm not angry anymore because I just don't care. Time to start worrying is when actually there isn't any emotion. We're struggling to care enough to have the conflict and to resolve it. And so God is angry here because he loves Moses and Moses keeps resisting him and not trusting him and not accepting his love for him. So his anger is kindled, it burns. It's a bit of a play on words, isn't it? Because if You've forgotten, we're still dealing with a burning bush in front of Moses here. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. God has an answer. And this is an interesting psychological thing, I think, isn't it? Because is there anything more of a come down than, well, I'll send your brother then in your place. <laughs> We'd love to pretend that we don't have that sort of sibling rivalry. But I wonder if that was a bit of a sort of hammer blow that he then just suddenly thought, ah. Oh, Why did I have to do that? (laughs) Now Aaron's coming along and taking my place. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. This tells us God had already prepared this. 
God already knew Moses' resistance, Moses' objections. God had already actually prepared Aaron to come and to meet him. He'd already provided the answer. He'd already provided the way out. Moses hoped for an easy way out, but God won't let him out of this and out of the difficult path that needed to be taken. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart, he says. And it's not just about seeing his brother, though that is great too, but it's about the message that he's bringing. He says, you should speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I'll be with your mouth and his mouth and we'll teach you both what to do. It's a repeat of that call in verse 12, but now you'll both do it together. One commentator here puts it, there is no doubt that his brother Aaron was a capable speaker, able to think up something to say in any set of circumstances. His problem was his inability to think issues through to the end. Moses and Aaron together were a combination to be reckoned with, but when Aaron on his own came under pressure and was without his brother's guidance, his conduct left much to be desired. And we'll hear that in uh, weeks to come in further chapters, that actually (laughs) these two need one another. They both have skills, they both have weaknesses. In God's grace, though, he works in spite of Moses' insecurity and disobedience, for the best outcome. He says, he shall speak for you to the people. He'll be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. As God had called Moses to send him, to speak for him, now Moses is to relate to Aaron in the same way. Aaron's the one who is to speak, but Moses is the one who is to guide him in what to say. And that comes from God himself. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs and it's a polite a kind way of God ushering him out of his presence now to go and do the job that he's given him pick up the staff with which you will do the signs Moses hadn't changed God's mind he had angered him a little bit the protests had been a waste of his energy and Moses discomfort with the call of God doesn't reduce God's determination to fulfill his call. God had made a promise that he's committed to fulfill for his people and Moses will have to get over it and get on with it. There's the signs, the speech, and then the mouthpiece provided. We end as we finish here. Well, faith is all about our little buts. Moses gives us three here. But my past but my skill, but not me. It's really easy in life to have faith in 90% of things. The things that we're not, truth be told, that emotionally invested in. It's that remaining 10%, the things we actually care about, that's really hard to give over, isn't it? The little buts. The things that we think we need to take control of. The things that we think we can't risk living without or letting go of. So that it could be your job, it could be a relationship, it could be money, it could be sex, it could be health, it could be appearance or approval or comfort or leisure, hobby, car, children, feeling needed, being successful, almost anything. Here's how Martin Luther reflects on it. He says, that now I say upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Whoever trusts and boasts that he possesses great skill, prudence, power, favour, friendship and honour has also a God, but not this true and only God. 
This appears again when you notice how presumptuous, secure, and proud people are because of such possessions, and how despondent when they no longer exist or are withdrawn. That is, you'll find sometimes what your God is by taking it away. Or the reaction when it's all there. Therefore, he says, I repeat, the chief explanation of this point is that to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. Moses didn't want to do this task because he didn't trust God fully. And his little butts expose that. And our little butts expose us that we too don't always fully trust God. But the good news for us is that a better saviour than Moses was to come. A saviour, Jesus, who needed no pep talk into coming into the world and giving himself over for us. Moses was worried how he'd be received and worried by the danger that he was going to face by returning to Egypt. But Jesus was willing to utterly spend himself for us. Listen to how the preachers of the Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 12 verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was willing to be killed brutally in order to pay the penalty for our sin on our behalf. He was not put off by the pain or the scandal or the shame of facing such a death. His trust was fully in his father's plan and his love was directed fully at us helpless sheep. So look at what the preacher to the Hebrews says we should do as a result of that. Just one verse before he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The call is, turn away from sin and look to Jesus, that we might run the race that he has set for us. Moses needed to lift his eyes from his inabilities, insecurities and inferiorities to Jesus. Eventually, Moses would learn that, but he hasn't quite yet. And this is the same for us too today, to lift our eyes from our inabilities, from our insecurity and our sense of inferiority up to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Not just an example, but the one who did it for us. That the work wouldn't depend on us. That the only work would be the obedience of faith, of trust. A belief that when Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished for you and it is finished for me. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song together as we end in worship.